chromosomes. Little strands of nucleic acids and proteins are the fundamental genetic instructions that tell us who we are at birth. Most people are born with 46 chromosomes, but each year in the United States, about 6,000 people are born with an extra chromosome, making them a person with Down syndrome. If you've ever encountered someone with Down syndrome, you know that they are some of the kindest, most joyful people you will ever meet. They truly have something extra. My name is Lisa Nichols, and I have spent the last 24 years as both the CEO of Technology Partners and as the mother to Allie. Allie has something extra in every sense of the word. I have been blessed to be by her side as she impacts everyone she meets. Through these two important roles as CEO and mother to Allie, I have witnessed countless life lessons that have fundamentally changed the way I look at the world. While you may not have an extra chromosome, every leader has something extra that defines who you are. Join me as I explore the something extra in leaders from all walks of life and discover how that difference in each of them has made a difference in their companies, their families, their communities, and in themselves. I'm excited to have Paris Forrest on the show today. Paris is the Information Technology and Data Analytics Director of Strategic Solutions at Boeing. Paris, I am so excited that you and I get to spend a little time together this morning because every time we spend time together, I just come away. I'm a richer person. Me too. So happy to be here, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. So you and I met. I always like to say how we met because I want our listeners to understand you never know when a connection is going to turn into a friendship and that sort of thing. But I have to give a good shout out to our dear, dear friend that you and I both love, Dan Roberts. Absolutely. <laughs> With Woolett and Associates. And he's like, Lisa, you need to know Paris. And we had lunch and the rest is history, as they like to say. But you know, you've just done so many amazing things. So I want you just to take us back. What was your childhood like? So I happen to have had one of the most magical childhood experiences. I am the only child of an only child. And so I was the center of the universe from the day I managed to make my appearance, which was six weeks early because I just couldn't wait to get here and start my journey. And from there, you know, I was really just encapsulated in this amazing love story with my mother and my grandmother you know, kind of being the promise of things for them that they never thought would be. So I just had this really cool experience where I was raised with this concept that I was the blessing of their life. And that really set me on a path. I had an amazing schooling experience where I really was poured into. And they let me know that, you know, if I worked hard enough and if I wanted to do, I could be anything. So I grew up doing a lot of dreaming, a lot of imagining what a life would be like if I were an astronaut and if I were the president and experiencing that through the lens of, you know, the two most amazing women on the planet. So, you know, while I definitely had a normal, right, experience, we all had stuff, we all hated middle school, we all got our first F, all of those things. I was just surrounded and encapsulated with a love that really defies explanation. What a blessing. I feel the same way. I was an only child too. I believe we had talked about that. We have. And I completely get it that I was the center of the the universe. <laughs> but my parents 
you know, they really did teach me at a very early age that it's really not about me. You, you know, you've been put here to make a difference. And there's so much I want to talk about there, Paris, because I see the difference that you are making in so many ways. And I want to dig into that. So I believe, though, your educational journey, you thought you were going to be an oncologist. I did. I was 11, and I'll never forget it. It was a Saturday morning. I was spending the night at my grandmother's house. I was watching Soul Train. And after that, a commercial came on for the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And I watched the entire infomercial. And at the end of that, you know, through tears, I determined that I was going to be a pediatric oncologist. That's what I was going to do. Now, cancer doctor for kids, I was 11. So it was cancer doctor for kids at that point. But I figured out what that was and what to call it. And that was my mission. And from there, every step I took, you know, going through high school, I made sure I took all of the right classes in the sciences to make sure I was ready for my undergrad. I wound up uh, enrolling at Missouri Baptist University in their pre-med biology program and was one class shy of qualifying for the MCAT when my life changed. What was your life change? I was home for the summer and I had an opportunity probably my sophomore year uh, while I was just finishing up all of my requirements for my degree, for the, the main part of my degree. And my mother was working at McDonnell Douglas at the time and she brought home a flyer for special summer hires to give tours in the history museum that exist here in St. Louis at what was the old McDonnell Douglas headquarters. It actually still exists today. It's called the, the prologue room. The prologue room. Absolutely. <laughs> I remember it well. And so, you know, she just brought the flyer home and I applied and I was one of the four people that were selected for that particular summer. And I was so excited. It's my first kind of real job at a big company. And we get there and it was a strike summer. So the bus drivers would not cross the picket line. So I spent weeks learning the material to give these tours because they were pretty intense and in-depth. But what happened was I got to spend that summer doing my studies next to a capsule of the Mercury capsule that went to space in the Mercury program that was, you know, really done here in St. Louis. And I thought, oh, I forgot I always wanted to be an astronaut. Like it was like all of a sudden the memory came back to me. You know, I was sitting there and I fell in love with everything. I fell in love with airplanes. I fell in love with the space program. And at the end of that summer, my mom was like, you know, babe, I have no clue what these people that I work with are talking about, but you've always been good with computers. And I really think you should do this. I think you could do it. So I'm going to get you an internship. And this was back in the days when you still could do stuff like that. And so she literally talked her boss into giving me a chance at an internship the following summer. And that changed everything. So you ended up going to McDonnell Douglas, I believe, it was it 1999? It was right after the merger. So I started my career as a McDonnell Douglas employee, my special summer. And then when I came in full time, I came in as a Boeing employee. In May of 1999, graduated on Friday and went to work on Monday. <laughs> Not a lot of downtime there. Not at but, all. Hey, you've always been a high achiever though, Paris. So that does not surprise me. Oh my goodness. You've done so much in your, is it 21 years? It'll be 22 in October. 22 years at McDonnell Douglas or Boeing. You know, obviously you took every opportunity and you made the most of it and then people noticed. And that's when you continued to get promoted or asked, hey, would you come over here and do this? So tell us a little bit about the journey that you've gone through. And then there's a lot of other things I want to talk about. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I've come to understand about myself over time is I'm just naturally opportunistic. And so 
some of that just has to do with, I think, being an only child and being really curious and always asking a lot of questions. And that just came with me my first day into work. Now, I will say one of the things that I had as an advantage is my mother had been working in the group that I wound up going into since I was a sophomore in high school. So by the time that I got there as a college graduate, I had a pretty good built-in network. People knew me. So I didn't necessarily have to come in and claw from the absolute bottom. I leveraged the fact that there were already relationships built around me just to keep that sense of curiosity. I would show up at people's desk and ask them if I could just sit and watch them work. And as I became more comfortable and confident in my own abilities, because I didn't go to school to be a programmer, I showed up at work and they made me a programmer. And probably for the first four years, I cried every week because it was really hard. (laughs) It felt like everyone around me was lapping me. But in reality, what was happening was I was going through the process of becoming trained from the inside. And there were so many people that took me under their wings. And as I would have problems, I I wouldn't just go ask someone, how do I solve it? I would ask them to come help me solve it, solve it with me. I would say, these are the six steps that I took and now I'm stuck. And they would say, great, you just, you did the right thing. Now I can help you unlock the rest of this. And I always sat and watched, whether it was someone solving a technical problem or one of our functional analysts looking at it from a business perspective, I sat, I watched them work, and then I added those tools to my toolbox so that the next time I could help solve a wide range of a problem not just a very finite problem. So I just think that some of my natural curiosity, my love for solving really difficult problems and having strong challenges put me in a position where when people saw me taking initiative, they just wanted to keep adding things to my plate. And then it became about how do I balance the fact that I'm overwhelmed and do I let overwhelmed become a problem or do I figure out how to expand my capacity and then when I can get used to it, then I know how much more I can take. So it was really a lot of balancing between frustration and figuring out how to take frustration and turn that into power and then make sure that I just was managing relationships and talking to people and reaching out. And when I was bored, going to tell somebody, you'd be surprised how much the simple action of going to sit down at a lead architect's desk and say, what's going on? I'm kind of bored how that translated into amazing work opportunities. Right. You know, I always say we can't read minds. So for somebody to come and say, hey, listen, I'm ready to take on more work. I'm ready for more responsibility. That's a really important lesson. Just having the courage. I mean, because I'm sure you had to muster courage all the time because it's like, well, I've never done this before. You know, I don't even know what I'm doing right now. But having the courage and the belief in yourself I just need to to get more things in my tool belt. And some of it was courage and some of it honestly was naivete. I don't think that I was one of those people that thought that it's bad if I go tell somebody that I'm bored. There are people that I've talked to and I'm like, okay, well, you sound bored. And they're like, well, I am, but I don't want to say that because then someone's going to think I'm not working. When the reality is you're kind of not because you don't have enough to do. You're not being challenged. And so a little bit of it was just an innocence that it didn't seem like it would be a bad thing for me to go say, hey, what you got? You need some help? Sure. I got some time. So how many jobs, how many lives have you had at Boeing? So so what's very interesting is I'm one of those unicorns that spent a really long time in one organization. But in that one organization, I had every job from intern to senior manager, everything in between there, including program analyst, functional analyst, testing lead, team lead, release manager. So I probably had in that one time frame that I spent in that organization 
organization, I probably had 12 to 15 different roles that just changed in size and scope and complexity as I was willing to change with it. And then now that I've been in leadership, I've been in, I think, four distinct roles since I've been in leadership, which has been really awesome. Yeah. So that brings me to another point at some juncture, because, you know, we really aren't taught how necessarily to be a leader. Yeah. But at some point you said, you know what, I think I need to go back and get my MBA. So you went to WashU, right? Uh-huh. And you I have did. an executive MBA from WashU. And I think I read somewhere, which I did not know about you, that you even had the hopes of getting a doctorate. Oh, absolutely. So tell me what you're doing today. What is your role today before we take a quick break? So today I am the strategy and operations solutions leader for Boeing Information Technology and Data Analytics. My job is to provide strategic and operational solutions based on the needs of our senior leadership team and make sure that we can flow those solutions in a common way through our organization. It gives me an amazing opportunity to stretch into that brand new MBA. Shout out to Emba 49, one of the greatest class to graduate from WashU's Olin Business School and also gives me the opportunity to marry up my love of technology to strategy and business execution because we are a technology team inside of a manufacturing company. And that means that we have to manage the business of technology in a, in a meaningful way and how we execute that in terms of our overall enterprise. Well, I want to talk about women in business, but more importantly is women in STEM. And there's something else that's interesting about you. I think you were the first Black woman to be on the executive team. Isn't that correct? Not the first, but from the organization that I grew up in, I was the first African-American female to be promoted out of that organization into the executive ranks. So you kind of live in a little bit of a male-dominated culture. (laughs) Absolutely. A lot of it. (laughs) A lot of it. (laughs) Absolutely. I read a quote of yours, and I really would love for you to kind of unpack this Forgive on purpose and trust on credit. So, you know, one of the things that I've learned, especially in my journey in leadership, is that every single day you have to show up positioned, ready for whatever the challenge of the day is going to be. And that challenge, more days than not, is not your technological issues. It's not even your business issues. It's human issues. And human issues are caused by the fact that we none of us show up with our robot intact. Now, we all put on a professional face and we put on our masks and all of those things, but all of the influences of the things we carry with our daily lives, they show up sometimes in our work. And in order for me to come to my job every day, best positioned to do what it is that I'm called to do, I can't be harboring ill will in my heart or contempt towards anyone in my heart. And so I say every day, I have to forgive yesterday. I have to forgive on purpose. And I have to re-extend lines of trust to people who violate that trust and they can violate it every day. Now, there comes a point where enough is enough, but most of the time people don't intend to cause harm, hurt, or danger or anything. It's just an outcome of the realities that their human being is dealing with. And so in order for me to show up with the empathy that I actually would like to have from other people, I live by the mantra, you forgive on purpose and you trust on credit. And that trust is infinite. And when it's broken, you address it and then you come back tomorrow in a new place of forgiveness with a full line of trust extended. Such great advice. Well, there's a lot more that I want to talk about, but we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Paris Forrest. 
we at Technology Partners understand the difficulty to find work that is engaging, yields high pay, and facilitates a work-life balance. Over the past 25 years, we have enhanced the IT teams of over 244 client companies and placed more than 3,000 IT professionals with them on short-term or permanent basis. Our staff includes over 300 experienced IT professionals. So if you're looking to take the next step in your career, visit jobs.technologypartners.net, apply for a job, and one of our expert recruiters will be happy to connect with you. So Paris, I want to continue this conversation about women in business, women in STEM, all of this. And I was thinking about you last night as I was kind of preparing for my time with you today. And I know you recently got married. I did. You now have a blended family. You've got Jameson, who is the center of your universe, right? But you've got a blended family of five kids now. Ranging in ages from 26 to 10. It's hard to believe some days. (laughs) I know. But then, you know, you've got this big job at Boeing. The things that you do in the community, I mean, seriously, you do so much, Paris. And I'm like reading all this and I'm thinking, I'm tired. (laughs) I am tired just reading everything that she's doing. And this woman wants to go get her doctorate. I mean, just amazing. But, you know, the balance is so important. How do you manage it all? So first things first, I really, I fundamentally believe in integration. I believe that your work and life have to be integrated in the ways that make sense for you. And the way that that starts is by making sure that per the airplane instructions, you put your mask on first. So everything that I've kind of learned about balancing the chaos and crazy has come from trying to determine how to live in an airplane because I spent a lot of time traveling for work and I was really afraid to fly. And I figured out that if I did not figure out how to conquer this fear of flying, that it was going to hold me back from the things that I really wanted from a career perspective. And so what happened was I actually started listening to the speech at the beginning of a flight. And I thought about it. And I'm like, you know what? This is life. We don't expect turbulence, but it happens. And sometimes that turbulence is bad and a mask is going to fall down out of the sky. And I got a choice. I'm either going to run around this plane and panic. I'm going to run around this plane and try to put the mask on everybody else. Or I'm going to take the advice, put the mask on myself, and then I'm going to help the people that I can help with my mask on. And that's really how I achieve the integration of my life. Now, is it balanced? No, my husband would be like, if you sit there and tell people that you have achieved some kind of perfect balance and you don't wear yourself out, I will tell them the truth. (laughs) Because I do get tired. But at the same time, I stop and I put my mask on and I recharge and I rejuvenate. Mm -hmm. Rest is okay. Absolutely. And to do self-care and self-care is self-love. And Absolutely. You know, I always say the people around us, whoever's entrusted to us, whether that's our family, whether that's our co-workers in the community, they deserve to have the best version of us. And if we are not doing self-care, there's no way that we're going to bring our best version to those relationships. And you bring up a powerful point that I would be remiss if I didn't add to that. I am an introvert. And every time I say that, people are like, 
what? But the reality is I am. And so part of that self-care means that I have to go into a cave by myself in the quiet and be done peopling. Because if I don't, then I do not have the energy or the light that I need to bring to any situation, whether it be my home situation, whether it be a work situation, a community situation. If I don't pause and go sit in the quiet and do nothing and say nothing, then I'm not who I want to be when I have to be in those public spaces. Absolutely. Well, and I know you and I, we've talked about this a lot. You're also anchored by your faith. Absolutely. That plays into it too. And I always say you cannot pour out what you don't have. You cannot give what you don't have. And you've got to take that time to, like you said, to kind of go away, <laughs> socially distance yourself. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and recharge and fill up your bucket so that you can go out and, and pour out. So Paris, let's talk about this. You call it the critic in the corner. I call it the gremlins. Sometimes we sabotage ourselves, And you and I've talked about that a lot. And you grew up with a mom and a grandmother that gave you incredible love, credible self-confidence. You can do anything, Paris. You can be anything. But you said that there was a certain point in your life in those teenage years where you kind of forgot that. Yeah. And it's been a journey to making the critic in the corner and the gremlins go sit down and be quiet because it is the bells and the alarms that go off in our head when we are facing into something that is probably our greatest challenge and next big opportunity. We as women, we generally tend to not want to take those kinds of risks and chances unless we feel like we're absolutely ready. And that's really what sets us apart. And when our critic starts to get on the microphone or our gremlins jump up and they go from being cute and fuzzy, they get a little water on them and they turn into nasty monsters, then all of a sudden we're trapped and we don't understand why we're not progressing or why the things we want in our life are not happening. And for me, it was, you know, around my junior to senior in high school is where I really started to develop the sound of that critic in a way that was going to potentially become a problem. I didn't even know that was what was happening. And so I think it's really important for us to talk about those experiences so that especially those that are coming behind us, they can learn to acknowledge when, in fact, they are holding themselves back because they're not sure that they can actually step up to the challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about this gap. There's a huge gap, women in STEM, I happen to believe, Paris, that we have to start at an earlier age exposing them because I think, you know, they make this judgment about themselves. That I'm not good at math. I'm not good at science. I can't do this. The first thing that I had to think about for myself was I've always been a technologist. I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know that's what it was. I was the only kid in my second grade class who could figure out how to put the floppy disk in the computer and start Oregon Trail without the teacher's help. So I was a kid in STEM before I even knew STEM was a thing. It wasn't a word. It wasn't attached. And as I was going through my processes, right, I always had a computer that I was playing with at home that nobody knew about but my mom. And it's those kinds of things that we have to highlight for all of our children. Put the capability in their hands. We put iPads in babies' hands and they pick it up instantly. And once we put the technology in the hands of our kids, we can't take it away. And we need to keep encouraging them, especially our young women, that as they become, you know, fast learners on whatever the technology is, let's just keep promoting that for them. Keep telling them that technology is an option. Show them women who are rocking 
rocket scientist, show them movies like Hidden Figures, keep encouraging the thought process that technology looks like me. Mm-hmm. Well, and the deal is technology, it is cool because technology really can improve the world. Absolutely. And it's in every discipline. There's nothing right now that isn't enabled by some kind of technology. So you can be an artist and a technologist. You can be anything that you want to be and have a thread of technology attached to that because our world is digital and it's going to continue to get more digital. So we might as well have as many people as we can helping to promote that. Right. And to your point, I just feel like we need to connect the dots for them sometimes, you know, because as a young person, you really don't know because you haven't seen as much of the world, right? So Paris, I'm going to probably embarrass you here a little bit. You have won so many awards, (laughs) (laughs) but you were given the Executive Walk the Talk Award, which I think is so cool. I love that. You were given that award from Boeing. Is there anything you'd want to say about that? I mean, why were you given that award? It's such a humbling experience to have an email arrive and say, congratulations, you were nominated and selected for any kind of award. And so this one is really special and close to my heart because I was nominated by um, a group internally into our St. Louis site, Diversity and Inclusion Council, for this award. And it's given to one executive at the site who demonstrates not just with words, but with actions, what it means to stand up and be a champion of diversity of inclusion for our company at our site. So it's just an amazing honor. I'm super humbled and grateful to be able to represent that. Right. Sometimes the words are easy to say, Mm -hmm. but the action behind it, it's harder to do. Absolutely. It can be very challenging, but it's worth it. Yeah. Very good. So this is something extra. Tell me about maybe a leadership misstep for you or where there was something extra missing. Do you have something anecdotal that you can tell our listeners about? I absolutely do. So, you know, speaking of diversity and inclusion and being a champion for it, I just recently had the opportunity to lead one of the most diverse teams. And when I say diverse, I don't mean by the things that we can see. I mean, in terms of location, religious orientation, sexual orientation, male, female, all of the things that you can imagine being into a team of of 12 people I had. And my misstep was I was caught by the utopia and the promise of what diversity and inclusion can bring to the table and really was not keenly aware that with that kind of diversity comes so much difference that you got to negotiate the differences. And as a leader, my misstep was I was really not adequately prepared for that kind of environment to set the stage for, listen, all of the disagreements that we are going to have actually are to our benefit. And so we have to disagree in the most meaningful ways. And we have to understand that everyone's intention is for us to succeed. And it's going to be when we can take a little bit from here and a little bit from there and a little bit from there and add it together that we're going to come up with the best and most powerful solutions. And because I didn't have that language on board, we struggled. And I was like, wait a minute, this was supposed to be amazing. I've got everybody represented in most amazing ways and it's awful. How come nobody told me? (laughs) Right, right. You know, you kind of had to be prepared with the right language and rallying the troops and letting them understand that, hey, we are going to have differences because guess what? We're different. That's right. From a lot of different experiences, a lot of different perspectives. But it's the language around that. And it's not something to be feared. It's something to be embraced. And let's take a little bit, like you said, a little bit from here, a little bit from there. 
And that's when you're going to have a better service, a better product. Absolutely. And once I had the epiphany and was able to bring that to our team as perspective, then all of a sudden the magic happened. And we went from, you know, a space where we were really struggling to try to figure out our identity. And we kind of went from storming to forming to storming to forming. We never got to norming. We were able to, <laughs> we were able to make our way through and, and we wound up doing something that was absolutely spectacular as a group. Very good. Well, what do you believe, Paris, this is something extra that every leader needs? Vulnerability, especially in the times that we live in right now in the world that we live in. It is not just important for the people who are in your span of leadership to be able to understand what you know or what you see or what you hear. They have to be able to relate in a real way to what you feel. And it's the hardest thing because as leaders, the expectation is that we bring a presence where we've kind of got it all together and we're, you know, impervious to the things that are happening around us in the world. But honestly, the something extra that leaders, especially right now, have to have is a sense of vulnerability because that will allow them to create the spaces that their teams need in order to feel accepted, supported, heard. There's a lot happening in the world all at once. And if your teams don't believe that you are living in that world with them, then they will retreat from you. That's such wonderful advice. Paris, this has just been so much fun, but I want to give you the opportunity and you're seriously, you are involved in so many different things. It makes my head spin. (laughs) Is there something that you want our listeners to know about and why is it important? Why are you excited about it? And tell them if they can get involved. So thank you first for the opportunity. And I want to shout out my great friend, Dr. Hydea Nicole Green. She is a young lady from St. Louis who is a physicist who has absolutely come up with a remarkable technological advancement in cancer research. She has created a solution where she uses nanotechnology and lasers to target tumors and obliterate them. It is shown to obliterate these tumors in mice in 15 days with no observable side effects. And we need to rally behind this great work and help her get to human trials. I cannot say enough about the Orally Cancer Research Foundation, about the amazing work that Dr. Green has done. And for those that are interested and want to learn more, please go to Aura, O-R-A-L-E-E dot org and just look at the research, look at the work and figure out how you would like to contribute. We need dollars to get to human trials, absolutely, but we also need support. We need recognition. We need opportunities just like this to be able to share that message to the world. Very good. Well, Paris, this has just been such a delight for me. Thank you for being on the show today. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's show. Something Extra with Lisa Nichols is a Technology Partners production. Copyright Technology Partners, Inc., 2019. For show notes or to reach Lisa, visit tpi.co slash podcast. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen.